You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jin Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, Kyle. Hey, Kyle. Hey, 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 hey. We, uh, what was that? Last, well, that was me being like, I don't know. That was like, uh, I think- Hey, I, so, producer Brad, can we get that auto-tuned? Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I got to tell you, I got to tell you, um, I uh, really wanted to be a radio DJ whenever I was growing up. And sometimes Lauren will tell me she can hear me slip into like radio DJ voice on the podcast. I think it's just that like, this is as close as I'm ever going to get. So you, I think that was- You really would have been, this. you would have been good at that. I think I could have been. I, I mean, obviously, so. it's a dying industry, so probably not very viable as far as the market But you goes, know what you right? could do if that doesn't work out for you? What? You could be a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I could try my hand at some podcast hosting. Uh, somebody recently who's like close to me, like we're friends, uh, was like, have you ever thought about starting a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I... I, I do have a podcast. And they said, wait, what? And I said, yeah, I do this podcast. And they were like, and they were like, oh, okay. I, I guess I, I guess I didn't put that together. And I thought, but you follow me on social media. And they were like, yeah, I just thought you just were a big fan. Like super thought, into this podcast. Yeah. What? Like that, I was, my feelings were hurt a little bit. I was like, uh, okay, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, today uh, we're covering a tale of two brothers. I, I got to tell you on the show notes that I put together or the run sheet I put together for Jen and JT, I uh, I spelled tail, T-A-I-L initially on this. And I'm so glad I caught it because you two would have mocked me mercilessly if I had called this a tale of two brothers. It would have been a very different episode, I think. It'd be a different podcast. Well, actually um, it would have been like a lot of other ones we've done. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> Probably so. Wheels off. But we're going to be talking today um, about this incredible story that happens uh, as we jump into uh, Genesis chapter 23 and following. And I just want to admit real quickly here, we're about to cover a lot in this passage, okay? We are going to start <laughs> with Sarah's death and we're getting all the way to Jacob and Esau. So like basically- oh my gosh. Basically, we're moving through a generation in, uh, you know, whatever time it takes to go for this. So let's jump right in. In Genesis 23, we hear that Sarah dies. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, she's going to go before Abraham does. Uh, and that she's given like a tomb. Uh, and that tomb is in the land of Canaan. And that, in my mind, really becomes a kind of a really significant place because it's it's really a functional foothold for Abraham now on the land, is it not? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And he pays an exorbitant price. You know, the, the amount of money that's recorded shows that he paid an exorbitant price to establish an ancestral burial ground in the land of promise. It is pretty cool. And it can be, again, we've talked about this before when walking through the story of Genesis, because we are so, we, because we are such a mobile culture and generation, this idea can be lost on us. But like to bury Sarah in Canaan, like Jin just said, is in is like he has established an ancestral burial ground and the radius of their movement now is like going to be tied mm -hmm. to where Sarah is at. Yeah. It's like, this is not like, oh, okay, well, we buried Sarah and, you know, maybe we'll just, you know, wander off to a new land 
that's not going to happen. They, they are, Canaan is going to be, it's not just the, the land of promise, but now they're kind of bound to Canaan now in a way that was not true at the beginning of the story of Abraham. It feels mm-hmm. like the beginning of the story, Canaan is all promise. But now that they've had some live reality there and Sarah's buried there, it's now their roots are going down on this land in a very specific way. Do you guys think this is a picture of Abraham, even though trusting that God is eventually going to give him this land? Like he's saying, this is this is going to be ours so we can put her here. And it's not in a sense where we're going to have to leave her. This is home, in other words. And we trust that God is going to make this our home. He'll be with us here. Yeah. I mean, he's built altars to establish that God's rule is going to be there. And now he buys a burial plot to, plot to show that, that, that the, the human stake will be there. You know, they're staking their claim there as well. And, you know, you get to the end of Genesis and, and Joseph is saying, carry my bones up out of Egypt. Like he wants his bones buried here in Canaan because this yeah. is the land of promise. So I do think we see that theme introduced here and then carried throughout the rest of the book. Sorry for that yeah. spoiler alert there, guys. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that's really good. So, okay, so so Sarah dies. She's buried in a tomb in Canaan. And when we get into Genesis 24, it says, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And, and Abraham really... Abraham's kind of looking death in the face. That's the way that this mm-hmm. reads. And it's like he pulls his servant aside and he's got this request, right? Because Isaac, this chosen son uh, that God has given him, it's almost like he's, it's not Abraham's last will and testament, but he's making a petition and he doesn't really have the power to carry it out. He's telling his servant like, hey, make sure Isaac goes and gets the right kind of wife. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. He says, make sure you go and get the right kind of wife for Isaac. Right. Um, He says, make sure that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. And he basically says, um, he says two times, don't let Isaac go back, you go. Um, Because as we pointed out earlier, that's a really nice place with a lot of bells and whistles. And he, I think he, he doesn't want Isaac to go back uh, as we're going to see Jacob do, right? Go go there and then not come back to the land yeah. of promise. So he yeah. sends an emissary. Yeah, and that emissary goes with a lot of good stuff. And this really begins a very long story regarding Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's fascinating because when the servant goes, it says it took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia. Now that's a city, that that's an, that's an area right there that has some, uh, if you've done any ancient civilization study, Mesopotamia, like you've probably heard of Mesopotamia before, right? Um, because it does have some street cred outside of the <laughs> biblical witness um, uh, as, a, as a place of abundance. Uh, and it says he goes Alexander to the city. Alexander the Great thought of it fondly. He had spent some time there. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, he made the, it's, it's, so essentially the servant goes off uh, and it, what do we find? We find another instance of a well. Mm-hmm. This is just like this story just keeps happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we find out that the servant goes to the well. He's there. He's addressing the daughters. And it says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah. You see how I'm nailing these names, guys? You're doing no so more. well. The wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. What? I mean, so look at this. It's like, man, what providence is this? Rebecca shows up at this well and she's kin to Abraham. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it says the young woman was very attractive. She had not known a man. She went down the spring. She filled her jar. The servant runs up to meet her and begins to address her and talk to her. He He's going to give her a bunch of gifts. Like, essentially, he's celebrating this woman. Uh, and uh, this really begins a unique relationship that leads to this person getting back to Laban, right? Yeah. He, he had said to the Lord, if she draws water for my camels, then I'll know it's her. And that's exactly what she does. And so he's pretty hype about it. <laughs> but like, let's just pause here. Like, th- is this weird? Like, there's a lot of weird idiosyncrasies on this story. But like, this is one of those instances where you're like, okay, like, does God move like this? Like, he's like, all right, God, the one who drills wa- you know, draws water for, you know, for the camels, that's the one. It certainly could be. Some of the commentators I read uh, really wanted to highlight what they called Abrahamic hospitality, that here you have mm-hmm. somebody from Abraham's family who's doing basically the exact mm-hmm. same thing that we just read about Abraham doing several chapters ago when he greets the three messengers mm-hmm. and as they're going to they're going to they're going to have a meal together. And here you have a servant of Abraham going back to his land and he's encountering somebody who's basically doing the same thing that Abraham is doing and teaching his family to do too. So this is what's going to make the family work together is this is a family that has meals together that hosts well. Even some of the language in the original language is the exact same. If she hurries quickly, she drew the water quickly. Mm-hmm. She's basically mm-hmm. running all over the place in order to take care of, of this messenger. The same well, way that Abraham did chapters earlier. It shows that she is strong and hardworking. She's not just a pretty face. Um, One of the estimates that I read of how much water it would take to water that many camels is 150 gallons. So (laughs) I was like, carrying bathtubs around, yeah, a lot of (laughs) schlepping. She had a lot of upper body strength. So uh, yeah. So Rebecca brings the servant back to Laban right? Uh, Who's her brother. And Laban's going to come in in a big way (laughs) in Jacob's love story, right? I mean, he Mm -hmm. plays a role here, but we often remember Laban not for the role he plays here, but for the role he'll play as a deceiver, (laughs) basically, of Jacob, Uh, you know. uh, But in this story, it seems like Laban is very excited, particularly when he sees like the wealth, right? Yeah. Like, like it, it makes note that like as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. Behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, a blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? So Laban is very eager to extend hospitality to this servant. And he begins a conversation. And, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing here unless Jen makes me backtrack. I will not as she often does. But essentially what happens over the the rest of this chapter is the servant represents Abraham and Isaac's interest on behalf of Lab, uh, to Laban and the family. And he, he basically promises like, hey, there's going to be this, uh, there's a groom for this woman, right? And we can arrange this marriage. And that's what happens. It says that, uh, that when Abraham's servant heard their words, this is after they have talked about everything that God has and he's been doing for Abraham and the request that Abraham has made to take a wife for Isaac. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to, to the earth before the Lord. The servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments, gave them to Rebecca. He gave things to their brother, to their family. He says, send me back away to my master. And and uh, it goes on to say that Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus, the servant took Rebecca and went this way. And now we have Rebecca and Isaac being together. We have them meeting. It says, then mm-hmm. Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebecca. She became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So the chapter begins on the hills of Sarah's death and it ends with 
Isaac taking Rebecca as his wife. Yeah. Is there, I feel like, Jen, maybe I'm wrong here, and sometimes I feel afraid to say this, um, uh, but like, not that I'm wrong. I'm not afraid to say that I'm wrong. Uh, but does <clears throat> Rebecca as a figure, I, I feel like does not get the same amount of attention as like Sarah to Abraham or even in uh, as much as like in the story of Rachel and Leah with Jacob. Yeah. It's like, and I, I'm trying to sense like, does Rebecca, but I also kind of feel the same way about, I. here's what I'm trying to say. Isaac and Rebecca at this moment feel like transitional characters between the story of Abraham and the story of Jacob. Is that wrong to feel that way? I, I think it's accurate. I mean, okay. they, the significance of Rebecca is that she's from the line of Shem, right? So that, which that's the line that was prophesied would be the one through whom the deliverer would come. And so there needs to be a wife who is from that line versus intermarrying with the Canaanites. So it's a very, it feels, uh, the story of Isaac and Rebecca's courtship and marriage feels like a mechanical, like there are more chapters devoted to the story of Joseph in this book than there are to Abraham or to Jacob. And certainly I think Isaac has a total of like three chapters in the whole, the whole book. And they're important because they're setting up these bigger themes uh, but yeah, I think you're right. It's not. It's interesting that we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, but Isaac really is more of a footnote uh, as far as the the bulk of the narrative is concerned. Right. It's almost like we talk about Isaac more before he shows up on yeah. the scene than we do once he shows up. Like we talk, he's the child of promise. He's the child of promise. He's the child of promise. Right. We're waiting for that. There's all this drama around it. Then when he gets there, you have the sacrificial mount, which is its own thing that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. But then like once you're in Isaac's adult life, it kind of feels like he's just a conduit to get to Jacob, who is kind of a larger conduit to get to Joseph. It feels like we're making... Very quick movements. He's a little bit of a foil for Jacob too. Like his character is going to, like we'll see that he's going to pray for his wife as she's dealing with infertility. And and that's a, in sharp contrast to what we'll see of Jacob's behavior. And, 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 and so he's, you know, there's these themes that we see in the lives of all three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're visited from different angles uh, in the lives of each of them. So... Um, I do think one of the in- most interesting theories I've heard about the story of Abraham uh, of, of Abraham sending the servant to to get the bride is one that I'd be interested for JT. You may hate it, JT, but I'm just going to bring it up. Here we go. So it is. So we know that Isaac is obviously a type of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here we see a father send. I love it. I know where you're going. Do you? Do I you? Love it. I love it. He sends the servant to retrieve the bride for yep. the prophesied son. That's right. And so there's a there's a really nice play for um, the the functional roles of the Trinity here in this little story that we see. You would go for that? Oh yeah. I, I think this whole chapter, well, really all of Genesis, and you can see all the Old Testament is is really about this question: How is the seed going to be preserved? Yeah. And we see with Sarah dying, and now Isaac is here. How is the seed going to be preserved? The offspring that is going to come and crush the head of the yeah. serpent and bless the nations. And so we need a new matriarch. And that's yeah. really what Rebecca functions as here. She functions as the new matriarch who is necessary to the entire plot line of redemptive history. So it's not just a, I do understand Kyle, what you're saying in terms of the brevity of the, of the, yeah. the narrative. It's not as long as some of the others, but, but it's absolutely essential that the story be here because Isaac needs a wife in order to maintain an offspring and f- for the purposes of redemptive history. And yeah. here you do see this Trinitarian analogy of a father 
sending a servant Mm -hmm. to gather up a bride for himself through whom he's going to redeem the world. Mm -hmm. And even you see here when when Laban is kind of like, hey, let's not send her. I don't think we should go. She says, no, 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 I'm supposed to go. So she's even expressing in seed form. I didn't do that. That's not a double entendre, not seed form, like seed form, but she's Mm -hmm. expressing in kind of a small form, a hope and trust in God's promises. Undoubtedly, she she may have heard about this and she understands what role she might play in redemptive history. Well, not only that, but we've already seen hints of Laban's character and Laban's going to play the role of the deceiver. So in many ways, we see a bride who is rescued from the clutches of a deceiver and delivered safely to her groom. And and I love it at the very end, Kyle, you just read this verse, the son loves the bride, Mm -hmm. which is again, a perfect, you have almost in, in kind of small form, a picture of redemptive history, just in this chapter, the father needs a bride for the son for redemptive history to be complete. And at the very end, I just love how it concludes. Those are the last words of the chapter. Isaac loved her. The son loves the bride that mm-hmm. the servant brought back for him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that, I'm glad you said all that because I got to tell you, I was not reading it like that. And I was pretty, bo- I was pretty bored pretty with bored. the whole thing. Uh, so that's really good. Because Are you I, telling I, me that you missed larger theological concepts in the midst of narrative? No doubt. It's happened before and it will happen again. Mm-hmm. But uh, but uh, if Sarah died in 23, what we find in 25 is the death of, I mean, gosh, it's the death of the father of Israel. Like mm-hmm. it's the death of Abraham. I mean, this is, gosh, this is basically the most momentous thing that has happened, I feel like, in the story of Abraham so far is this death. I mean, just think about how much this would ripple through the rest of the family. For sure. Uh, I mean, Abraham is the reason all of this is happening. I mean, obviously God is the reason, but Abraham is the patriarch. And I don't think there's any way for us to over uh, estimate just how consequential this is. Um, It says that he took another wife whose name was Keturah. So uh, Abraham still had some romance in those old, old bones. Uh, and she bore him Zimran. I mean, I'm not going to say all these names. Please, please. Please, come on. That's what the people are here for. Uh, okay, Zimran. <laughs> no, don't do it. No, it's okay. fine. <laughs> Thank you. Um, she bore him a lot of children. Um, and so Abraham was also fruitful in his old age. Uh, and it says he gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from a son, Isaac, eastward to the East Country. Now, now I got a question about this. Is uh, This is a significant mention, isn't it? Like, so Abraham gives all that he has to Isaac. He specifically sends them away from Isaac. All these other like all these other kids, this feels a little bit like, gosh, it feels a little bit like what happened with Hagar and with Ishmael in that like Abraham is being, whether by divine, like he thinks it's a part of the divine promise or it's like incumbent upon him as like, uh, as Isaac is the child of promise, but like he sends them all back basically. And here he keeps Isaac. Is there something... I feel like we've seen a pattern now of Isaac basically sending away any other of his children away from Isaac. Is there something that we should see here? Or is like, is is it a temptation thing for Isaac? Is it a competition thing? Well, the list there that you declined to read is definitely a list of the enemies of Israel. So, you know, I don't know that we want to say that it was wrong for Abraham to take another wife or not, Um 
but it seems to have resulted in some bad more work. more trouble for Israel. But he has the foresight for whatever reason um, to to put distance between the the line that he knows is the righteous line and and that line. Um, I feel like I read that she was potentially not a wife but a concubine because verse six says, "But to the sons of his concubines." Right. And that she gets lumped in with that, so that she might have just. But I don't. I can't remember now at this point if that was what I well, read or not. It, it's also possible that he is. He's remembering the covenantal promises that through you all the nations will be blessed, yeah. not just my son Isaac. So Isaac is the is the is the one who's going to receive the ultimate blessing. All those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. So he can send sons away, give all things to Isaac, send them away with gifts. He's not sending them. I mean, it says in verse. Six, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, and while he was still alive, he sent them eastward. Eastward is an important uh, kind of picture for us. There mm-hmm. is is we are supposed to hear still Genesis chapter three. They're being sent out of kind of this place that God is dwelling, this promised land where God's presence is. They're being sent eastward, but we have to remember that the ultimate picture of redemptive hope here is that it's not just those who are in the land that are going to be blessed, but even those who are eastward, that God would bring redemption and his covenantal blessings to all people, not just to Israel. And this is actually really interesting. It's fine that you didn't read the names, Kyle, because we asked you not to, but you do have several, Zimram, Jokshan, uh, uh, Mid and Midian, Ishbak and Shua, and in Isaiah chapter sixty, out of all these sons, you actually have Isaiah prophesying that these sons are going to re- eventually come back mm-hmm. and receive blessing. So I think here what you have is you have a, a, a picture, or a type. We've used that language on this podcast before, maybe hyperlink of what God is going to do eventually. Can I read part of Isaiah chapter sixty real quick? Yeah, oh, Kyle doesn't want me to read it. There's no names, Kyle. It'll be fine. <laughs> Isaiah 60, uh, verses 1 through uh, 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. So here's, he's talking about Zion, uh, Israel in exile. He's saying, here's what's going to happen for you after the Babylonian exile. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear before you. Nations will eventually come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. Raise your eyes, look around, they all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from far away. That's key. Your sons will come from far away and your daughters on the hips of nursing mothers. Verse five, then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. So these nations that have been your enemies Mm -hmm. will eventually come to you. Verse six, Mm -hmm. caravans of camels. There's going to be camels here in just a few chapters. So Mm -hmm. I think Isaiah is remembering that. You've got caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come to you from Sheba. So you've got three sons here. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. What else does that sound like? Gold and frankincense mm-hmm. coming to being praises of God. Yep. So, so you have a picture here of these sons who were born in ways that are outside of, of Abraham's original line through Isaac, but they're going to be the ones who eventually come and give Zion or the king of Zion praise. So I think it's important that we see, again, even in these kind of proto forms in Genesis, we see that eventually these sons that we're not really sure why they're named are here. Isaiah is saying, one day these kings are going to come back and praise you, bringing their sons and daughters. This is exactly what happened. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? 
In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Into the birth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's good. So moving forward here in the story, we get the list of these sons, then we get the list of Ishmael's sons, and then we get the birth of Esau and Jacob. And they're about to be the two characters that we're going to be following for the next large portion of the narrative. And we're going to spend a little bit of time with Jacob and uh, Esau. And I guess it's worth reading the birth story uh, because it's going to go on to be such a framing device for the rest of this. So it says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. This is Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. There we go. We see that theme again coursing through here. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was six years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I'm going to read the next part too. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay. Wow. No problem. This is a lot. There's a lot going on here. Um, And I think when we, one question I just want to open up with, um, because you know where this story is going. If you have even, you know, this story is going to Jacob being the blessed son here. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it's giving us that clue that Jacob is going to steal this blessing, like from literally from the birth account. Like he's holding on to his heel. (laughs) And, uh, like this is, he's coming out. He's, uh, Jacob is, it's the narrator is indicating to us, Jacob is going to get this blessing, whether he has to grab it, steal it, Mm -hmm. deceive it. It's happening. And I just want to say, is this really how God works? Is this really how the blessing is going to go down the line is through this? Is this like that to me just feels, I got to say this and maybe it's just, obvious and that's okay it just seems really messy <laughs> he's gonna be the healer oh, oh no Ugh. Ugh. oh <laughs> make it stop <laughs> jacob is not like 
Jacob is, I find Jacob to be the most unlikable character For in sure. the whole Genesis mm-hmm. narrative. Mm-hmm. Top to top to bottom. I don't Absolutely. feel everything that happens with Laban, people spin that yarn as like, oh, look at Jacob. He was so persevering. Like Jacob was a scumbag. Yeah. This dude, this dude is not a good guy. Well, so, but we, like, there's a lot of irony that's already built into this part of the story for us because right before uh, we pick up with the birth of Esau and Jacob, we had this really long genealogy for Ishmael, which seems out of place. It's like, who cares, dude? He's not it. You know, like, move on. And instead you have that listed there. Why? Well, because the father of a multitude, Abraham, is buried with one child as as his rightful heir. Um, so there's this irony there. He's 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 going to inherit the land, but all he owns is a burial plot. And so the the promises that God have given uh, are are looking like they're not coming to pass. Not only that, but Ishmael has been fruitful and multiplied. You know, like he he's the one who's a father of multitude. And so mm-hmm. then we get to this story of Isaac and Rebecca, and you're like, this is it, man. This is where the story turns and gets better. And instead, you get a red hairy baby <laughs> and a jerk baby. And so it's Which like, one do you want? Yeah. So it's like, hmm. <laughs> you get a Wookiee baby <laughs> and a liar baby. And she waited a long time to have those babies. And uh-huh. so I think what we're supposed to be feeling at this point is exactly what you're saying, Kyle. It's like, this cannot be the plan. Like, this cannot be the no. plan. No, it, you, you, you just keep waiting in the, in the narrative of the chosen line. You just keep waiting for somebody who looks the part to show mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a part, that's gotta be a part of the narrative drama, right? It's like, Hey, ever since Eden, we, Eve has been told she's going to be the mother of all living. That's that one is going to come to crush the head of the serpent. Yeah. And the Genesis narrative just keeps giving us. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? one yeah you guys think there's any significance between the language crush the head of the serpent and the one who grabs the heel i mean he's definitely going to be he's a he's a cheater and a deceiver so i mean he's obviously being set up as mm. as that alignment like his name means either he grasps the heel or he cheats so yeah but like he's be. the one who the seed eventually comes to like he's not the murderer from the beginning he's not he's not a part of the seed of satan he's the part of the seed of redemption oh he's i see what you're saying through, through whom christ will come so i'm just saying like mm. i'm not trying to draw any like stark conclusions just wondering if you guys had given that much thought because again it, the reason i thought about it jen is you just said he's when it comes to crush the head of the serpent mm-hmm. which is what we're given in genesis three fifteen. and here you have the like it's just an interesting language the heel yeah, grabber is. yeah it is interesting yeah i hadn't I, I thought about it after the birth story, which we, we get this account that the boys are growing up and they're different. That's what the, narr- the narrator wants us to see. This is a river runs through it kind of story, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just like a, did I just like, I've is that a dated it. reference? I don't oh, know. really? Okay. I'm with you, Kyle. Okay. Um, but like, these are two different boys. Uh, and, Can you give uh, me a West Wing reference, please? Mm-mm. No. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Jacob, it's a, you know, but then we get Jacob. And we get Esau selling his birthright for basically a mess of porridge. Like Esau gives it away uh, for the inheritance. And I've, I, you know, oftentimes when I heard this, I heard the story as it was taught to me was like, well, listen, Esau really is the one who made the bad decision here. So mm-hmm. like when Jacob deceives to get the blessing later, that deception is really rooted in the fact that Esau had basically already given that over. To Jacob. Can't both like, be true though? 
Yeah, I think they can be because he straight up lies to Isaac multiple times. It's not like he's like, it's not like he comes before Isaac later in this when we get to it and says, hey, don't worry, Isaac, father, uh, uh, Esau sold me his birthright. You know, he basically just pretends to be Esau. Mm-hmm. He's not really dying either. He right. sees something as short-term you know, gain as being better than maintaining his birthright. This is a guy who's willing to follow his passions wherever they lead, despite the consequences. Right. And I think that last line, that language, Esau despised his birthright. Like here's a guy who it's like Jacob is willing to to take what is honorable by a dishonorable path. Mm-hmm. Esau despises what is honorable and, le- and that like is a dishonorable thing. To and it do. wasn't just that he despised his birthright then. It was right. that he never really in cared general. about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In general. Yeah. But also, I mean, we can't we can't miss verse 28. That's a really important verse for us to pay attention to because it could have said Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game and Rebecca loved Jacob, but that's not what it says. It says Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebecca right. loved Jacob. And that's going to set up for us that the really the root of all, I would argue that the root of all competition between siblings is, has something to do with parental, they're picking up on something that the parents are communicating. And I'm not trying to shame parents. I'm saying it could, sometimes kids just misread stuff. But in this story, it's clearly being set up for us that there's mm-hmm. a favoritism thing going on. And rather than uh, lash out at the parents for for choosing favorites, they lash out at one another and, they, and they're going to they're going to continue to wrestle as they wrestled in the womb. Yo, uh, Jen, not to pull you into something totally off topic here, but because you brought it up, uh, Jen, uh, you're further along than JT and I are in parenting. (laughs) Um, uh, you know, uh, you're not leading the senior adults ministry, uh, but you're, but you're on your way. (laughs) Um, uh, but like when you, uh, when you read a story like this, how much of like it's a, let me give it as a two-way road. How much of it shapes the way you think about parenting? And then how much of your parenting ends up shaping the way that you read this? I'm asking, uh, this is pure, this is not on script for the show. I just want to be clear about that. But I'm asking this because you are further along. You actually yeah. have adult, you have adult sons. Like, who and have, daughters. Like, and daughters, yes. And they're mm-hmm. different from one another. Mm-hmm. And they probably had spits and spats and differences Mm -hmm. and discrepancies and divisions and all that stuff. And so I'm just asking purely out of curiosity, when you're reading these stories, and the Old Testament is full of them about parents and kids, how much of reading those stories influenced or influences the way you think about parenting? And then how much does your practice in parenting end up texturing the way you read the stories? Oh, I think it's made it. I think it's made a big difference. I mean, and the thing is, is like people are like, oh, so I have to be a parent to be able to read the Bible the right way. No, you're, everybody's a child, whether you ever become a parent or not. So you actually mm-hmm. have insight into family dynamics just by virtue of being born. Now, does that vantage point change, you know, when you have kids of your own? Yeah, I would say that it does, but it doesn't mean that someone who never has children can't see some of these things too. In my case, I have had a mentor who was so good at talking about 
this issue of favoritism. And she would always say, um, each of you is my favorite, you know, and then she would say, uh, uh, Jen is my favorite Jen and Jeff is my favorite Jeff. And, you know, and you're like, that's so corny, but you also believed it, you know, and that, and so with our kids, that was what we wanted to do because I had some experience of what favoritism could look like in a home. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say I was the beneficiary of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like the stories of uh, Jacob and Esau and then the story of Joseph that we're about to hit, I, I felt like, oh gosh, I can see how how, um, how that can play out. And I mean, my adult siblings and I are all in a really great place with each other, but you know, when you're a kid, that's hard to navigate. And, um, and I do think that what, what my mentor, the gift that she gave to us in our parenting was that you're allowed to love each of your children. You don't love children equally. You love them uniquely. Um, and so, um, if, let's just say we were going to sit Isaac and Rebecca down for a parenting class. You know, you would say to them, hey, you should love each of these children uniquely. You shouldn't love one more than the other just because you're self-actualizing through them. And that's what we're seeing here. You know, it's like Abraham wishes he, or I mean, Isaac wishes he was cool like Esau, you know, and then you got Jacob who's like the classic mama's boy. And so they each find something of themselves in that child. We are way off topic now, but anyway. No, no, no. The point being if you could sit the two of them down and say, hey, Isaac, you need to you need to love the things in Jacob that make him uniquely Jacob. And sure, his weaknesses bother you, but there but but any child's weakness is also potentially as great as strength if it's if it's pulled in the right direction by by good guidance. So yeah, that's fascinating to me. And we'll also use this as an opportunity to shout out to the Wilkin kids. What's up? Who are all Wilkin family? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's, what's up, children, what, yeah. What's up, Wilkin kids? There's your shout out. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. So, okay. I so, hang out with Jen so I can hang out with Jeff and the Wilkin kids. The <laughs> Do they still listen to this, Jen? Uh, yes, actually. Not not all. Uh, they, they listen in fits and starts. All right. Love yeah. you guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in Genesis 26, 1 through 5, we get a rearticulation of the promise to Abraham to Isaac. Isaac hears... Isaac receives a promise that his father received, right? I mean, we get a rearticulation of the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I should tell you, sojourn in this land. I will be with you. There's the promise. Mm-hmm. I will bless you for to you and to your offspring. I will give all these lands. There's the place. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. There's the people in place. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's the purpose. So what did, what did Abraham receive in his call and covenant? A promise of presence, people, place, purpose. What is rearticulated for Abra- for Isaac's uh, for Isaac Abraham's son here? The very mm-hmm. same thing. Um, Isaac is a beneficiary. He is continuing the line, and it says, "Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." So, you know what's fascinating here. If I can just pause, why is a why is Isaac the continued beneficiary of this? Because of Abraham's faithfulness. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. It. I, I, no, you don't think so? God's faithfulness. Oh, gosh. I'm, yes. I, I, no, 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 no. I'm not. That wasn't a dunk. I'm saying <laughs> that's totally really important. Right. No, no, no. no, no. God, it was not no. because of Abraham's faithfulness. You think it, Abraham Abraham expressed faith, which was a gift from God, which nobody can boast. I'm, mm-hmm. I, no, no. This, no, this, I, this what, is not me what, dunking on what, you. What's it say? And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham. Oh, really? Really? Did Abraham do that perfectly? He did do it perfectly. Really? Because we just went through those episodes, didn't we? Hey, I'm reading to you what the Lord is telling I thought we just talked Isaac. about imputed righteousness a few episodes ago. 
This is not a slam. I'm not trying. You guys, I'm not trying to dunk on Kyle. I'm trying to say, I think that's a really important point because you could just read this as, aren't we so thankful that Abraham was faithful? Aren't we so thankful that Abraham just, you know, obeyed God at every single, you know, corner and, you know, corner and turn so that now Isaac gets to receive that also? No, no, no. Is that the good news? No, no, no. The good news is that God is faithful, but the corresponding response to that is Abraham's faithfulness. And I think this is a really important point. We need to go back to a few chapters. I'm not going to let it go because I think that oftentimes we treat um, uh, the same misunderstanding we have over God's covenant relationship with Abraham is the same misunderstanding we bring into salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Through Abraham's faithfulness alone which is that Abraham functions as a picture to us, a picture that Paul is going to give us when he says about Abraham in Romans, no less, but no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. So is Paul being hagiographic here? Obviously. Oh. Hey, Kyle, what does hagiographic mean? Is Paul is Paul giving a glorified history of Abraham? There you go. Because Paul's saying no distrust made him waver. He wavered regularly throughout the story. I think what we're seeing is a picture of this. When God sets his faithfulness upon a people, his faithfulness is the prism by which he views their faithfulness. And that's very good news. But the response to God's faithfulness of his people, of whom he will give them all of the credit of his forever covenant faithfulness, is a faithful response. If Abraham had not left Ur, this story would not have gone in the right direction. And for all of the starts and stops of Abraham's story, ultimately, at the moment of decision, uh, 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 with when he, where he was called to sacrifice Isaac, he believed and mm-hmm. it was counted to him as righteousness. And so I do think that it, we cannot underplay the significance in the Old Testament for Abraham or Moses that while these men were not perfect, they were expected to be covenantally faithful. And it was through their covenant faithfulness uh, founded on the faithfulness of God that the people of Israel were allowed to be formed uh, and were allowed to receive blessings and benefits. You take you take them out of the equation, then the story is very different. Isaac is able to receive these benefits because he is the offspring of Abraham. That's it. I, I really want to have a gentle conversation around this because I, I, I hear you and I, I th- I'm grateful for the contribution that you're making. I feel like I have to say this before. <laughs> and I just want to say, you're each my favorites. Yeah, Kyle, you're you. my favorite Kyle and thank JT, you, you're my favorite JT. <laughs> thank you. Well, there's lots of Kyles and there's not many JTs. So I guess Kyle is doing uh, a little better than I am. <laughs> okay. Kyle, I don't think you're wrong, but I don't think that's the point that Paul is making in Romans. I mean, if we're going to go to Romans chapter nine, which is exactly what Paul is quoting here about Jacob and Esau and Moses and Abraham, specifically in Romans chapter nine, he says, he's talking about God's sovereign choice. He actually says that not all who descend from Abraham are covenantal children. And he's pointing out to Ishmael and so many others. So it's not because of Abraham's faithfulness or being a descendant of Abraham, who the one who is faithful. It depends solely on the God who has mercy. He says that in, in, Paul says that in Romans chapter 15, in Romans chapter 16, or sorry, Romans 9, 16. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Yeah, I'm not quoting Romans 9. I'm quoting quoting Romans right. 4, 19 through but, 22. Right, but Romans, the entire way through, is a commentary on these texts, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Right, so Romans chapter 9, is he's getting to his, and he's talking about Jacob and Esau. How could mm-hmm. you, the, the, the clay say to its maker, how could you make me like this? Why do you love Jacob and not yeah. Esau? Like, this is this is the story we're talking about, right? 
I don't understand how you're saying that it depends on Abraham's faithfulness when it seems like Paul's point, giving commentary on this chapter in particular, is it actually does not depend on human exertion at all. And both in Abraham and Isaac's life, we actually see a great deal of unfaithfulness. Yes, belief, but unfaithfulness to the covenantal promises. But God grants grace anyway. I think we're actually saying something probably closer to what we think because I hear you as saying, listen, Abraham's uh, faithfulness is not a crucial part of the reception of blessing for his children. And I'm saying it absolutely is, but it's rooted in a a fundamental faithfulness, which was Yahweh's faithfulness. I think that's what's happening in Romans. I think that's also the just the template of the gospel is that we are like faith is not just blind trust in God. Faith is covenantal loyalty and allegiance. And Abraham would have known that very clearly from the conditions of the covenant that he saw and the covenant that God made with Abraham. Those conditions were ratified, sealed, and would be kept fundamentally by God even when, when Abraham disobeyed. But I do think that it is the faithfulness of God that serves as the foundation for our faithfulness to God. And I think that's very significant for us to see because if we miss it in the story of Abraham and the covenant of grace, so to speak, then I think we will miss it when that covenant of grace is fully detailed in the ministry of Jesus and in the writings of the New Testament. I think this is some of the confusion sometimes around what does it actually mean to place faith in God? For Abraham, it didn't merely mean believing that Yahweh was the one true creator of the world. It also meant leaving Ur and going to Canaan. And it also meant taking a son up the side of a mountain, being prepared to kill him. Right. But I mean, I really think this is a healthy conversation. This feels like the conversation between justification and sanctification. I feel like Jen is just waiting to dunk on me in a minute. So I'm just (laughs) going to say what I have to say and duck out of the way before she posterizes me. I just don't think that's what Paul's saying in Romans. I mean, if you look back at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, it's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Again, this this is exactly what we're talking about. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And again, I know we're probably agreeing on 98% of it, but Paul seems to be double downing on... This is this has nothing to do with the with the covenantal faithfulness on the human side of things, which points back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, that Abraham does not walk down the aisle. God does. It's God's covenantal faithfulness that saves. Yeah, for sure. And I agree with that a hundred percent. But it is on the foundation of that faithfulness that righteous action is predicated. Like it, like and this is where it is even the- and unrighteous action. Right, for sure. But uh, when when unrighteous action occurs, the the curses of that covenantal disobedience goes to whom? It goes to God. But when righteous action occurs, the the fruits of that covenantal obedience goes to his people. This is where Paul goes in Romans. He doesn't end with Romans 9. And Romans 10, 11, and 12 and following are going to be full of ethical exhortations. And this is the template for all of Paul's letters. And it's basically indisputable. Paul begins all of them. No, it's indisputable. 
indisputable. I'm grateful. No. I'm grateful. Just wait. Watch me. <laughs> no. Paul, Paul's template, you know this, Paul's template for basically all of his letters is let me give you a lot of indicatives about who you are and what God has done. And the back half of them is this is what you are to do. That's and true. I'm not, and I'm saying that I'm not what, disputing that there is not an imperative in the gospel. Let's keep the conversation the same thing. <laughs> the conversation is not that there is an indicative and then an imperative. Of course there is. You've mm-hmm. changed the conversation. No, because you, you just said that the covenant of promises depend upon Abraham's faithfulness. No, yes, his enjoyment, the benefits of those covenantal promises are contingent on his faithfulness in the same way that I should not expect deep delight in Jesus if I have low degrees of obedience But this is your conversation between commands. union and communion. This, you're talking that's about— all, no, no, That's no. what I'm saying, though. But that's no, what's no, going you're talking on about the, covenant, not communion. That, you said covenant. No, communion is a different thing. Covenant participation and covenant enjoyment are union and communion. Those yeah, are two different words. But you words. didn't say covenant enjoyment. You said the foundation of the covenant. Okay. Okay. So here's the thing, guys. Um, it's time to wrap this up. It's been super fun. And so we're going to, it's going to be like high school debate class where you get um, to give your summary argument and it can only be 20 seconds long. So how long can it be, everybody? Kyle has to go first. Okay. I'll go first, gladly. Okay. okay, in short, what I'm saying is that, oh gosh, don't do that. In short, what I'm saying is this. It is God's covenant faithfulness that brings Abraham to the land and secures the fundamental blessings of covenant participation. But Abraham and his offspring do not get to enjoy them in the way that God intends unless they obey God. Okay, now, now, Kyle, you cannot now say any more words. Only JT says words and JT, you only get 20 seconds. Give your position. God saves from the beginning, middle, and end. The work of salvation, covenantal redemption, covenantal enjoyment is his and his alone from the beginning, middle, and end, and is all perfected in Jesus and then him giving us the Holy Spirit. And that's the picture that we see here. We do nothing. So what I like to think has just happened here is you've both gotten to learn a little bit about the book of Genesis and learn some good parenting techniques in action. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, well, also, okay, we're, there's no way, Kyle, we cannot go no, through the rest no, of the content. No, I will not. hurt you if you say we're doing no, that. No, we're not. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going we're gonna to cut it off uh, in this point right here at God's rearticulation of this. And we'll get to Isaac and Jacob and just, uh, we'll keep, we'll keep this going in the next episode episode when we're talking about Rachel and Leah. But we do need to land the plane. And I want to land the plane in this story. So can we do it with Abimelech? I think we should just read Romans 9 to land the plane. Can we oh, do that? Oh, my word. This is where JT would have to go to the timeout chair if we were in the same place. It's, it's, I think it's important to tell the audience we're recording these episodes at night, which is something we've never, <laughs> which is something we've never done. And I'm learning we never did it for a we very good reason. Never do it again. Mm-hmm. I'm having so, fun. You're let's, like a little crankopotamus, JT. Is oh, happy? Happy. oh my gosh, this is you happy? Yeah, I'm thrilled right now. Yeah, okay. So Isaac <laughs> settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, what does he do? Jen, tell me, what does Isaac do that seems vaguely familiar at uh, the end of chapter 26? He is the worst. He basically says she's his sister and, and yep. you get this repeat. And it's this terrible repeat. And you know, Abimelech is like, that apple did not fall far from that tree. It's true because this story just functions as like a beat for beat remake yeah. of what Abraham had done with Abimelech uh, as well. So it says Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac should have said, my daddy taught me. I mm-hmm. mean, like, but he said, uh, you know, because I was afraid that you would kill her. 
Um, and Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife. You would have brought guilt upon us. So he warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man. And this functions in a, in a providential way mm-hmm. as, as giving Isaac, the reason I wanted it, this is a good place to land, is this becomes Isaac's covering in the land. That's right. Like that's why it's significant. Obviously it's a little bit humorous that the story plays out very no, Kyle, it's not funny. It's gross. <laughs> it's, it's an illustration of how the sins of the father translate down to the son, and it's and that's gross. Uh, but it is also showing us once again we have the pagan who is more righteous than the one who is in the righteous mm-hmm. line, and so it does end up the Lord uses it for their protection. But it is uh, super shady how he acted. Yeah. So I, it says that Isaac departs from there uh, because there he starts to gain wealth and Abimelech gets concerned that he's this close to somebody who's gaining this much wealth and property and possessions. So Isaac leaves from there and he goes and camps in the valley. He, he digs wells there. It says that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father. He, he's settling into the land and the, the place to land is that we find that uh, when we get towards the end of chapter 26, it says when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, to be his wife, Basmath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So, like, the way that this part of the saga ends is Esau goes and marries Canaanite women. Canaanite women, and it says they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. There is there is drama in Isaac's house, and it is getting worse. It it was bad from the beginning with Jacob and Esau, and now Esau is going his own way. And while Isaac is settling into Canaan, trying to kind of put his roots down, probably trying to give his family some stability, Esau is not helping that. So that's where we'll land today. Anything to conclude to land the plane, Jen, JT? I think you tried to save Isaac's character there a little at the end. Uh, I would say that Isaac acted like an idiot and then he did not, with regard to how he uh, did not protect Rebecca, and then uh, he does not do what was done for him. He doesn't send someone to get a wife for his son from among um, the descendants of Shem. And so I actually think what we're seeing is a failure of Isaac to to steward um, the family that the Lord has given him. That's interesting. Yeah, I can see that. That like, Sorry, Isaac, that kind of is more of a low note than you wanted to end us on. So. No, no. I mean, but I think that's a good point here because you're right. Like what we saw with Abraham at this stage in Abraham's life, mm-hmm. he was really trying as best he could to set up, set up a righteous way forward mm-hmm. for, at the very least, Isaac. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Isaac profited immensely from that. Um, but he is not extending the same courtesy, it appears, to Jacob and Esau. And in our next episode, we'll see, nor does he do it effectively for, for Jacob. When when the time comes, so yeah. All right. Well, this was fun. Um, it's uh, late uh, for us as we're recording this, and we have to record another. So you can join the conversation by finding us on social media. We're at Knowing Faith Podcast wherever. <laughs> I mean, if you're on social media looking for us, type in Knowing Faith Podcast. <laughs> Engineer, Br- Engineer Brad is going to punch me in the teeth for that. Um, in, uh, in our next episode, we'll be exploring the tale of two sisters and uh, wrapping up this story. So hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.
Hey, producer Brad, can we get that auto-tuned? <laughs>